0: This morning, I wanted to read a brief scripture and have Josh and Erica come on up here again for a second, because in Psalm 40, which we're going to refer to later on in the message, it says, David had uh, this psalm, and he wrote, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise toward God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. So with that, um, David had a new song in his heart. and That new song was a result of trials and different things that he had gone through. But God has us sing new songs because there's new seasons. And so as you know, uh, Josh and Erica are moving to Monterey. They are going to be part of a a church planting uh, internship for a year. So they're going to have housing out there. And uh, Josh is going to be looking for a job. And and, uh, so this is Josh and Erica's last Sunday. And then Wednesday will be their last Wednesday. Um, and as I share that with you, it's a part for us as the body. You know, I, I think that so many times when it comes to church culture, it's, it's kind of like um, consumer church in America is like, okay, what are you guys going to do? Who are you going to bring up? What are you guys going to do? And, and it's not about what are we going to do, but what is the Lord going to do? And I would like you to join with me, not only in praying for Josh and Erica, But for praying for our youth, because God has a great plan for them. And I don't want it to be a thing of of a survival thing. I look at Ephesians where it says that God is able to do exceedingly uh, um, abundantly above all that we can ask for imagine. So there's some people that we've talked to and prayed for. But we really want it to be the Lord's people, person or group that comes and ministers to the youth. Um, Sending you guys out is tough because it's kind of like if you have kids and when your kids go to college... It's a good thing, right? You're excited, especially, you know, they're moving away maybe to a new place, um, but it's a hard thing as well. So we want to be a part of that. We love you guys. Uh, We're grateful for not only the youth, but how you've infused your lives into the body of Christ. So let's, um, first of all, let's let's give Josh and Erica just a, a thank you. So appreciate that. And... We're going to miss Seth and Eliana also. Uh, you're, you know, I was looking at some of the pictures. Just even if you go down that hall towards children's ministry, there's pictures. And you can't believe that that's just a couple of years ago. I mean, how, how much they've grown. But um, let's go ahead. Would you join me in praying for Josh and for Erica? Father, we just want to thank you for the Shivelys, God. They are a blessing to the body of Christ, a blessing to our youth. Lord, they're a blessing to us. And God, we know that they're going to be a blessing where they go. So, Lord, you already have the plan. You already know where it is that you are sending them. We ask that you would prepare them for that. We ask you, God, that you would give them insight and wisdom and the lessons that are to be learned along the way. And then, Father, in faith, we, just, um, we also want to join together in just asking, God, for your plan for our youth as well, that you would bless them. That, God, whatever it is that you would desire to do, that you would show us and that you would lead and guide. And, God, we want to thank you that you provide. And I just think of so many times, Lord where lord you send some of your kids to another place that you don't do that to the detriment of your other kids Mm -hmm. so god we trust you for that and we love you and uh, we lift up the shivelys in jesus name amen all right all right yeah love you guys (laughs) all right so uh as youth make their way out i also want to make a couple of other uh announcements just some things to be in prayer for um If you look at your bulletin on uh, the back of your bulletin 2016 year to date um, praise God we're $1,329 in the black this year so that is a yeah that is a wonderful thing for sure for those of you that have been a part of the church for let's say six years or more you know that at one point in time we were $64,000 about in debt or so, maybe a little bit more, and uh, we're, we have about $2,000 more to go, so we're almost even. I can't wait until we are even, it just, uh, um, but a lot of transition and, and things in the past, but um, I just wanted you to uh, also be in prayer for that. There's a lot of things that we have to exercise, exercise faith for, and everyone talks about summer months are, are the worst months for a church. But we're blessed. I look at May and, you know, we came out $9,953 in the positive in June 1372. So um, we're, we're praying that as that continues, not only to get out of debt, you know, we've cut back on so much over the years. and um, But there's also a vision for going forward. You know, one of the things that I'm praying about and, and that we just brought up at our elders meeting is with the fall coming up, you know, one of the things I would love to do is an outreach to UC Santa Cruz where we just provide meals and and food and help people move into campus. You know, what a great way to reach out to some freshmen. I'm also thinking about both Brook Knoll School and Vine Hill School about maybe preparing um, some gift for the teachers to begin the year, letting them know that we're praying for them and that we're here for them as well. So as we pray about those things, um, I just want to go forward in, in faith and With the the Shivelys moving as well, what does the Lord have for us? What does God want to do? And it's a good thing, uh, an exciting thing to be a part of ministry in this day and age. Finally, I wanted to thank you for praying for our son, Josiah. Um, You know, people look at him and think that he has Wolverine type of healing capabilities because uh, the scabs are almost all gone in less than a week um, he, you know, the dental work, all those things. If you didn't know, he was in a, a really bad biking accident. He was airlifted on Sunday uh, to Stanford Hospital, a very scary thing. Uh, if you get our church email, then you already know about it. If you don't, then, then just sign up and go, man, send me the last week's email, and you could read about it. But I just wanted to thank you for, for praying for him. I would have shared more with you guys sooner and put it on that prayer chain sooner and, and let you guys know. But um, I didn't want my mom to find out. So if I would have put that on social media, you know, she would have been very worried. So she does know now. So hi, mom. You know about that. And Josiah is here at church today. Couldn't keep him home. And uh, it's a blessing. So (laughs) Um, this morning, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Wow. This is a heavy chapter. Uh, It is a chapter where... I'm just letting you know ahead of time, this is the chapter where we get the phrase fire and brimstone preaching. Because chapter 14 has some fire and brimstone in it. But let's not miss what the Lord has for us. So again, I'm just going to pray that God would focus our uh, attention and give us understanding. Jesus, this morning when we open up Revelation 14, we are going to read a section of scripture. That many people in this world, when they think about you, shake their fist at you. God, it's a chapter in which people say that I cannot believe in a God who would judge others and judge people and send them to hell. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would remind us, Lord, in this passage of your grace and love and mercy also, that, God, you are a just God, but, Lord, you are also a merciful God. And you're not willing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. So I pray, Lord, that as we open up this chapter that we would see it not as man's word but as it is your word i pray lord that we wouldn't take our ideas of you from our own inclinations and our own desires and thoughts but god we would see what you reveal to us about yourself and i ask that again your spirit would work in our lives that our um, hearts would be united in faith as we are receptive to what you have to say in jesus name amen a lot of different interpretations of the book of revelation as we've talked about before And and each of them have their own strengths, but the futurist approach to me seems to be the most uh, biblically accurate uh, fitting in with the book of Revelation, which most of the book of Revelation is quoting from other parts of Scripture in the Old Testament. So when I look at prophecy, the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy as we see in the book of Revelation. God shows us that this book that we have is supernatural, and that it's not just a religious book, but... There are predictions about things that will happen, and things that we look at as history now were predicted in the past. Kings of other nations, kings of Israel, what would happen as a nation? In fact, it wasn't until, it wasn't until Israel became a nation again that everyone thought, many people, not everyone, but the majority of Bible scholars looked at the Old Testament prophecies about Israel and said, well, that has to apply to the church. Because Israel is no longer in existence as a nation and has not been in existence since, you know, for 2,000 years. And they're looking at that right around World War II, looking at Nazi Germany, all the things that are happening with the Jews. But then later on in 1948, when Israel becomes a nation again, people start to read scripture and go, whoa, Ezekiel chapter 37. Man, there is something in there that is true that God predicted ahead of time. So when we read the book of Revelation, it really comes to me as a a great um, bolster of faith, understanding that God knows the future as well as He knows our past. He is always in control. There is nothing that catches God off guard. If you remember last week in Revelation chapter 13, very intense chapter about the Antichrist, about the beast and the dragon and the the false prophet and, and all of those elements, those characters that we see um, and how they are a part of these last days in the great tribulation. But now in chapter 14, we have this reminder of God's faithfulness. We have the reminder that that nothing catches God off guard, and, and God is not going to be defeated. And I want to let you know that in Revelation 13, for those that are on the earth, and when we read that, sometimes it feels like evil is in control. I mean, I, you can't go through 2016. I mean, if you look at headlines... From just this year. We're in July right now. We're going into August tomorrow. But just in the, these seven months, it just seems like evil has its absolute way. Now, I, I know that evil is prevalent in our world, but it should never be a thing where we read those things in the news or we hear those things and we think that God is not in control. Things get worse in Revelation chapter 13. Can you imagine worse than they are right now? Exponentially worse. Natural disasters, rebellion against God, um, murders. I think about the church being taken out and and this preservation that we have. Remember, we're called to be the salt of the earth. And salt not only adds flavor, but it's a preservative. I think of that preservative being taken away, how rotten things will get very rapidly. And so in Revelation chapter 14, we turn a corner... And John, writing here in verse 1, says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now remember, who is the lamb? It's Jesus. Okay, all throughout the book of Revelation, we see the lamb. Standing on Mount Zion, the representative of Jerusalem, the, the representation of God's people and God's authority. And when I look at this scene, it's such a contrast to the chapter before where it seems like the world is just spiraling out of control. And maybe people are asking that question, where is God in there? Especially those that are faithful to the, to the Lord. Where is God in the midst of this? Things, things seemed as dark as they could get. In chapter 13, we read about the dragon, Satan himself, giving power to the beast and his kingdom, this ten-headed beast and the, the Antichrist, the other beast, the false prophet. Those that were on the earth would have to get the mark of the beast, the darkness of the world, in order to buy and sell, sell and to be a part of this world economic system. And yet here we see that Jesus is always victorious and he always has a remnant. This 144,000, these Jewish Witnesses we read about earlier. Um, realize that when we get to chapter 14. There are still 144,000. Not a single one of them is lost. And one of the things to remember is this. God is in control of our times. Do you realize that God holds us in our time. And how long we live. And you could be the healthiest. Uh, you know organic eating Marathon running, uh, UV protecting person in the world. And God knows your number of days. And God knows those that are his. And the 144,000, as we see them now coming through this tribulation period, they were the ones that realized that Jesus truly was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. During the tribulation period, they, they, I think, responded to the witness and the testimony of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 the antichrist bringing about a world one world religion of worship but the one hundred and forty-four thousand know that they cannot compromise the teachings of god's word and in the midst of this it says that there is something that is written on their foreheads now you remember in chapter 13 what happened to the mark of the beast those that didn't have the mark on their right hand or their forehead wouldn't be allowed to buy or sell or, or to do anything Um, of commerce, basically to survive, to be a part of this system. But here in chapter 14, we see that that's just a counterfeit. We, We realize that God's people have God's name written on their foreheads. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Who are these people having his father's name written on their foreheads? They did not have B's for Baptists or W's for Wesleyans or E for established church. They had their father's name and nobody else's. What a deal of fuss is made on earth about our distinctions. We think such a deal about belonging to this denomination and the other. Why, if you were to go to heaven's gates and ask if they had any Baptists there, the angel would only look at you and not answer you. If you were to ask if there were any Wesleyans or members of the established church, he would say, nothing of the sort. And I would even say of Calvary Chapel. But if you were to ask him whether they had any Christians there, he would say an abundance of them. They are all one now, all called by one name. The old brand has been obliterated, and now they have not the name of this man or the other. They have the name of God, even their father, stamped on their brow. And I love that, and I'm not against distinctions. You know, I look at families, and there's... Uh, distinctions of a family that sets another family apart. There's diversity and that's great. But ultimately, we are part of a much larger body. We are part of a much larger church. And there are churches all over Santa Cruz County and all over United States and all over the world that when we meet in heaven, we're going to realize that the distinctions aren't going to be the things that we are going to be thinking about. So remember that in the Old Testament... Those that followed God, if you, even if you go to Israel today, you'll see people with um, Orthodox Jews and rabbis have something on their forehead. It's a little box called a phylactery, and a phylactery has the law of God written on it. And then they they you know they they make it really small and they put it in this box as though you know they're obeying God's command to have God's law you know written on their on the, on their heads you know just at their forefronts. And yet here, what we realize is that. Those witnesses have the Father's name on their foreheads. You know what they're doing? They're representing God very well. You know, I think about different types of tattoos, especially if, if someone um, has a gang affiliation. I used to work with a program in which if someone had a gang-affiliated tattoo, we would have to realize that there are other people in the program that might be from a different gang and we'd have to have an intervention beforehand because as soon as that rival gang member sees that tattoo and they realize that person's from another tribe, there's going to be conflict. And they do that because they're representing a gang. They're representing something that is a part of their livelihood and who they are, an identifying mark. Before these 144,000, they are marked with the name of God on their foreheads. And it, it begs the question for me and for you, what are you all about? You know, what do you represent? You know, i you could represent a sports team. That's fun. You know, it, it's great. I have a—I have a, a jersey, Frank Gore. He was my favorite 49er. Not on them anymore, but I have his jersey. You know, I, I have a, a shirt that says Steph Curry and, you know, Golden State Warriors. So there's some representation of that. But ultimately, that is not what I'm all about. What I'm all about has to be what Paul said is to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so when it comes to what we're all about, These witnesses were about standing for God and singing to God. Notice it says in verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. This is none other than from earlier descriptions, the voice of God like many waters, Um, not like a stream, not like a trickle. Uh, You know, I've never been to Niagara Falls, but one of the things that I love to do, whenever there's a storm warning, high surf advisory, um, dangerous waves, you know what I love to do? I love to go to West Cliff Drive. Um, I actually have tried to time it to be at Mavericks. I've never been to Mavericks during one of their biggest swells, but there's something majestic about seeing a wave just crash. There is something awesome about hearing the roar of it. Uh, not not too long ago just this past winter i went out to west cliff drive during a storm and and it said that the waves were going to be you know 14 foot waves that were going to be hitting and i was just sitting there and i, I was just worshiping just praying and listening to the waves crash against the shore and i think about god's voice as the voice of many waters and like a a loud thunder better than thx dolby in your chest you know, I love the way that it rattles. You know, when you're sitting under the fireworks and, and you could feel the boom in your chest. I love that feeling. And here it is, God's voice. And then the sound of harpists playing their harps. If you've ever heard someone playing a harp, well, it is a beautiful sound. And we know from an earlier chapter that the elders are playing these harps. And so there is a, there is God, a, a call to worship with his voice. There are these harpists, those playing musical instruments, and then there's going to be some other voices in heaven that are joining in with these voices. For these witnesses, God was on their minds, but he was also in their hearts. Notice what they sang about in verse 3. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. No one... No one else could learn the song that they had learned, and it was a new song. So, what could that mean, this worship team of 144,000 witnesses? Remember, I read earlier in Psalm 40 that David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. He established my steps and has put a new song in my mouth praise to our God many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord now Psalm 40 is a song that um, when I was in high school my favorite band was U2 they were at the LA Memorial Coliseum we got tickets we're seeing U2 at the Coliseum just an amazing thing and being a Christian at the time you know Bono starts this is the last song I waited patiently for the Lord Psalm 40 it's called 40 if you've ever um, heard that song amazing and, and at the time, you know, it's kind of before everyone has cell phones. What did they do? They held up lighters. So everyone has their lighter and they're holding up their lighter. We're singing Psalm 40. And, and one by one, as, as all the band is up there, you know, one by one, you know, Bono leaves. Lead singer, he's gone. And now it's just, you know, the instruments and, you know, the edge on guitar. And, you know, all these guys, they're, they're, they're just singing. And then the guitarist leaves. Then the bass player leaves. And it's just the drummer. But what you have is like... 60, 70,000 people and the smell of marijuana in the air that are singing, I waited patiently for the Lord. You know, and I'm just looking around and it's this ironic thing that that everybody's singing, you know, this Bible verse. But you know, when I think about Psalm 40, I realize that in the original, when David wrote it, he wrote it out of a place which was a miry pit. And some of the songs that God wants us to sing Some of the new songs that God produces, some of the new lyrics in our lives happen during some of the worst times. And God produces worship from us when we're struggling. Now, there are happy worship songs. You know, there's a song that it's called Oh Happy Day. Have you heard that one? That's a great song. Oh Happy Day, you know, it's a foot stomping, clapping type of song, great song. I don't sing that when I'm depressed. I never look up, okay, on Spotify, I'm going to play Oh Happy Day right now because, you know, today I just feel wrecked. You know what I look up? I look up um, songs like Great Is Thy Faithfulness. You know, I I look up songs, you know, just the deep hymns, It Is Well With My Soul, written by someone who had just lost his family in a, a ship that was sunk. And when I read those songs and I read the Psalms of David, that becomes the song that resonates from my heart. And so the 144,000 witnesses experienced a unique experience that only they could testify of. You know what they saw? They saw slaughter. They saw destruction. You know what they saw? They saw God's wrath. They saw people shaking their fist and yelling at God. They saw rebellion. They saw, they saw martyrs. And so the song that they sung was a song that wasn't taught to them in heaven. It was a song that was learned on earth. And some of the songs I believe that we are going to sing to the Lord in heaven are songs that we are learning the lyrics to in the midst of the trials that we are facing right now. And this 144,000, they sing, they witness, they represent God, but they also have a song in their hearts. In verse 4, it says that these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. He goes. These were the redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, when it says these are the ones who are not defiled with women, these, I believe, were 144,000 Jewish men. But this does not mean that men are holy and women are not holy. Okay? Okay. It says in Hebrews that the marriage bed is undefiled. Now, let me explain this. If they were 144,000 virgins that had never been married and did not defile themselves with women, they were not undefiled because they were single. Okay? Singleness is not any more holy than being married. And being married is not any more holy than being single. We call it holy matrimony if someone is married before God and it is a holy thing. But remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians during times of intense persecution. He said, if I, it's in my opinion, but he said, it's up to, you know, in my mind, you know, my opinion, it's better for you to remain single in the day in which you live. But if you want to be married, then you haven't done any wrong. You know, God's blessing is there as well. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says that the marriage bed is undefiled. The sexual relationship between a husband and wife is a good thing that God created. When you read in the book of Genesis, yeah, amen. I heard that, amen. Uh, God said that it is good, okay? It's good that man would not be alone. Yet if someone is single, then that also is a good thing. So I just wanted to make sure that you understand that these 144,000 virgins, that it's not the fact that they were single that made them undefiled, but that they were single set apart for God. And as they were set apart from God, they were not going to enter into a sexual relationship with anyone else because as single during this time, they were just saying God is, is what we are all about. And that's a very important thing because in our day and age, values shift over time. You know, if I think about Ozzie and Harriet, okay? Those of you that are older, uh, you know, you can remember Ozzy and Harriet, Brady Bunch, Leave it to Beaver, I love, Lu- you know, the, the, the standards of media and television Let's say that the, the Christian standards were up here and those shows were, were here. You know, they, they had the morality part of it. They didn't have the spiritual aspect of it. But over time, as culture begins to change what is acceptable, and, and it, it's a political hotbed right now when you consider sexuality, right? Sexuality, the mantra for today is sexuality belongs to me. It's only what I decide. It's what I want. And don't anyone tell me what is right or wrong because I make that decision. But these 144,000 virgins were saying, no, we worship God. We're gonna be undefiled and do things the way that God would desire. Now that is a whole message in and of itself that I'm not gonna go into, but there are reasons for that. There are, there are reasons when it comes to our worship of God to abstain before marriage, but there are also reasons just physiologically and emotionally when it comes to relationship, agape love is where you deny yourself. Agape love is where you lay your life down. So if you could prove to someone that you're going to lay your life down and deny yourself, even though that you love this person, you know that you're going to marry this person and you want to marry this person, what it's doing is you're showing that person, this is how much I value you. And it's a guarantee and it gives you some assurance that when we get married, I will still resist temptation because I've shown you that I've done that with you. So there's all kinds of reasons for it. But in this case, the main reason is that they are setting themselves apart specifically for God. And this is a part of their song that they sang. And when they sing this song, this is a song that the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't understand that song. You're waiting until you get married? Why? I don't understand that. It's a song that they sang that no one else could sing. Now their unique experience, a part of that was being Um, being virgins that were set apart for God it also says that they were first fruits if you notice it says they were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and the lamb we understand that when you offer your first fruits um, for example if you go into the Old Testament the first fruits a tithe was 10 percent not from leftover but it was that first 10 percent if you had a crop you wouldn't give God your leftover crop You wouldn't give God your gleanings of just whatever fell down. You give God your best. If you brought a lamb, you would bring the best lamb. And this 144,000 as the first fruits was not only, I believe, the first fruits of many more that would come to Christ during the tribulation period, but in a sense, it's kind of like, God, we're giving you our best. It's what sets them apart from so many other people during this period of time. And I believe that the same thing is true for us as Christians, that we are to give God our best. We're not to give God our leftovers, our leftover time, our leftover emotion, our leftover attention, our leftover money. I'll serve God if it's convenient to me. I will worship God when I have time to worship God. God is God. And when we read this chapter, one of the things that is going to stand out is how worthy He is of all of our worship. And so when we read through the word of God and we understand these 144,000 don't only minister to those during the tribulation, but they minister to you and to me right here and right now. But then in verse 6, we see it is not only, or verse 5, in their mouth was found no deceit for they are without fault before the throne of God. It doesn't mean without sin, but like Job, they were blameless. There was no deceit. There was a, an openness in their heart. There was no secret sin. There was nothing that they kept from God. And know this, when we keep back things in our heart from God, sometimes we do it for fear. But know that when I hold back, when you hold back something from God, there is something in your intimacy and closeness from God that you miss out on. You miss out on the experience of that intimate relationship with God and that wholeness So not only the 144,000 witnesses, but in verse 6, we see that there are these three angels that have a a voice. We have these victorious voices from Revelation chapter 14. It says in verse 6, I saw another angel. So these angels, these messengers, this one flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Saying with a loud voice. Fear God. And give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth. The sea and the springs of water. This angel flying in heaven, I believe, was an angel. There is a ministry that, um, that launched a satellite probably 20 years ago now. I think it was called Angel 1. And angel one was to proclaim the gospel all over the world. And they said, hey, that's the angel. We just launched him. You know, we, we're, we're going to put a trademark on him and we're going to copyright it. We launched the angel out of Revelation 14. But I don't, I don't see that. I see that this is a, another angel. This is a supernatural. This is a divine being. Having the everlasting gospel. Interesting that in our world today, before this end time, We're we're the ones that are called upon to preach the gospel, not angels. It's not angels that are preaching the gospel. God gave that to you and to me to preach the gospel. We're not to keep that to ourselves. We're to share the good news. The word gospel means good news. It's not a musical genre. You know, if you go to, you know, uh, uh, internet, you're looking at, you know, billboards top 100. There's, you know, pop and then there's rock and then there's, you know, you'll see gospel. And we have made gospel synonymous with the culture. Gospel singers. You know, in the South, there's the gospel culture. But we we forget that the gospel is the good news, that we are to proclaim that God has given us that message. The message, the gospel is preached to every nation, tongue, tribe, and people, which means that God is still, even in the midst of their rebellion, reaching out to them, right? They're still alive. The gospel is still being preached. That means there's still an opportunity for them to repent and to turn towards God. And it is never too late for someone I believe that is alive to turn to God therefore it should never be to us to judge who is ever going to be saved or not be saved and it should never be up to us to judge I shouldn't really share the gospel with them because they're far gone because I look at this point in time and God even at this point is now even allowing an angel to preach the gospel the angel cries something out with a loud voice, the first thing that he says is fear God. Fear God. I know that sometimes when we read in Proverbs, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I hear times, you know, I've probably even said that this is a reverence for God. This is a respect for God. But I want to say that it is also a fear of God. To fear God. Why should we fear God? There are a lot of people that I respect. There's so many people that I respect that I don't fear. The Bible says that we're not to fear any man. We're not to fear any person. So this word is unique in the Bible that is reserved only for my relationship to God. Because I'm not to fear men. Not to fear people. So this is not just reverence or respect. Because I have reverence and respect for a lot of people. But it says to fear God, which means God is the only one that can judge me. And you should fear the one that is alone, able to judge us. He goes on to say, give glory to God. All people are going to give glory to God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. But some are going to do it willingly in the here and now. Some will do it after the here and now, where every tongue will confess But we have an opportunity, as being alive, to worship God, to give God glory in all we do. And so that's my prayer for us this morning, is that as we give God glory, as we fear Him, that we worship Him, we give Him glory, you know what that means? It means to lose yourself in Christ. The word here means to to bow down. Again, we're not to bow down to any people, right? But if you've never lost yourself in worship, I encourage you and and I I just I think one of the things that grieves me most is when Christians don't enter into that lostness in Christ not a lostness as far as perdition and going your own way but if you've never been lost in worship you've never just been caught up into God's glory and you've just sung to him not caring what other people are are thinking or singing or how you sound but your heart is just gripped in that time of worship That's what God desires. And it's not only what God desires, but I want to share with you, it's what blesses you. This is, there are times in worship where I can enter into this worship time with the Lord, whether it's at church, in my car, or alone, where my problem is not solved by the end of that worship time. My circumstances have not changed, but I am changed. There is something different about my heart something different about my outlook, something different about me because I entered into that time of worship. Don't think of it as just musical style. Hey, I get it. I understand when I, you know growing up as a Christian in the 80s, I used to pray, God, please save Eddie Van Halen. You know, because you know the Christian music at the time I felt like it was kind of fluffy. And you know, you ever listen to Eddie Van Halen's riffs and they're just like they're amazing. And, and, and you think about glory being given to God because God gave that person talent. And yet it's not about the music in and of itself. The music is great if you find worship that, that resonates with the sound and you, you just love it. That's great. But I'll tell you that there are times when you worship God when the sound isn't so great. There are times that some of the worship that has come from my heart to God hasn't come from my favorite worship song but it's come because I'm broken and I'm crying out to God and God grips me with a song that I need to sing to Him. That not only does God desire that, but I need to sing that to Him. And sometimes in the midst of your trial, you need to sing. You need to sing to the Lord and open up your heart. This this give God glory, worship Him. The angel leads us not to hold back from worshiping God. Then in verse 8, another angel followed. So the first angel, fear God, here's the gospel, worship him. The second angel comes and says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she had made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There's a book that I have, it's called Intoxicated with Babylon. Babylon represents throughout the Bible, a a world order, a system that is against God. A mindset that is against God. So Babylon, when you when you consider this, and we'll get into it in Revelation 17 even more, it speaks of the city or the world um, system or world order that is in rebellion towards God. And sometimes Babylon is used for worship, like entertainment. Um, you know, there's one singer. His name is Jahru, and and Jah means God. Okay, and and I saw a clip at his concert when he came out. And he said, everyone raise your hands like this. Everyone raise their hands. Raise both hands. Go like this. And so everyone's going like this. And they're saying, Ja, Ja, Ja. And that's the name for God. And I'm waiting for lightning to come down. <laughs> you know? But God won't be mocked. There is a point in time when, when God will judge us based on our worship. And Babylon, in my heart, Babylon is representative of those things that draw me away from worship of God. You, you just think about world images or, or media today. You know, we live in just a pornographic, saturated culture in which it's not only accessible, but it's acceptable. And sensuality and the worship of the human body is, is greater than it, it's ever been as far as accessibility. When I was growing up, there was one theater in Baldwin Park that was this theater that used to be a great theater. Then it closed down and became a triple X theater. I remember as a kid knowing that that was the bad theater. And every time we walked down downtown Baldwin Park, you would look and no one would really want to walk into that theater and be seen by anyone. It was something that was kind of out of the way. And a magazine would be found by someone at school or they would bring a magazine from their older brother from home and then you, you know, they would pass that around and you're exposed to those things in that way. But that is in the pocket of our children now. That is everywhere. parents. Be vigilant, be vigilant to protect, to guard. But let me say this to you and I as Christians, be vigilant to guard your heart. Because Babylon is saying, worship me, do not worship God. Babylon is strong. Babylon is not just in sensuality and entertainment. Babylon is finances, is the mark of the beast. Worship the mighty dollar. Our dollars say in God we trust, but too many times we live in this dollar I trust. And when we trust in our finances as our security, and we trust in our our 401k and our retirement plan and all of those things, you know, God wants us to trust him. I'm not saying not to be a wise steward. We should do that. Proverbs is filled with that. Jesus talks about finances, you know, more than any other person. um, Many of the scriptures that Jesus teaches about are about finances, but... Our trust really is in the Lord. It should not be in a financial system. And it should not also be in a politically charged system. Um, I, I don't get real political. I, I do that purposefully. But I'm just going to read to you something that Hillary Clinton said in on uh, April 24, 2015. Because it fits so much into this. It was a speech that she had given, regardless of what your political affiliations might be. She said in regards to abortion, which the Bible is all about God preserving life. And so, again, at times, let's say that uh, there's a Christian in the Democratic Party, but party line might be this. Or in the Republican Party that goes more moderate now, and party line might be this. At some point when I'm a Christian, I have to break party lines. Whenever a party or a candidate, or a person says something that goes against what God says. That's part of Babylon. You know what she said in regards to abortion? She said, there, it, we need to change our deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases when it comes to abortion. So here's a politician, and I'm only picking on her because that was the one that I remember. But there are other politicians that say the same thing. We need to change. This is someone saying, we need to change deep-seated cultural codes and religious beliefs. We need to change that. And so whenever someone comes in and says, hey, yeah, you know what? You could still go to church. Yeah, you're still a Christian, but change your beliefs in this area. Change your behavior in this area. Just know that that's something that the Bible, that God calls Babylon. I don't care if the person says, I'm American. God says, that's Babylonian. Okay, that is something that is against him. And, and I also want to be sensitive to this. I understand that if I were not a believer, before I was a Christian, abortion just made so much sense to me. It just did. As in certain situations. I thought of a poor family. I thought of the extra financial burden that they would take on. And I'm like, well, that, that baby, you know, hasn't even come to this world yet. And if it's still early, that just made sense to me. But when I became a Christian, a follower of Christ, I started reading the Bible, I realized that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we're knit together in our mother's womb. If you read about Jeremiah, and you also read, you know, in Psalm 139, and I started to understand that God is the author of life, and the finisher of life, and life is precious, and this culture of life is valuable to God in every stage, and I want to be very sensitive to those that have had abortions, and to those that have pushed someone else to get an abortion, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess our sin to him. And that sin does not set you apart. You are not vilified and hated by any means. I love you. God loves you. And so the message that we give though, that we have to understand is that Babylon has fallen. The world system of entertainment, finances, political system, all of these things, anything that gives us emotional stability, financial stability, a sense of our identity, a sense of our worth, a sense of our future, all of those systems will crumble. And there will be only one thing left to identify with and that lasts the test of time, and that's God. And God says, I love you from the beginning to end. And the reason why these, why are these warnings going out still? It's because He loves people and He wants them to turn. And I understand this is a very difficult part of Scripture for some people to receive, it says, she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So my question is, figuratively speaking, remember that Abraham looked forward to the city whose builder and maker was God. What city are you a part of? Not what city, Santa Cruz, Scotts Valley, not, not what city, but what city, the city of God or the city of Babylon? And I have to decide where I want to encamp and consider myself a citizen of. The third angel, verse 9, third angel went out, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. and They have no rest day or night. Who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now we already considered what this means last week. This mark when the Antichrist takes over. He'll have total authority. He'll control the world market. Can't buy food, gas. You know there's no more cash. You can't be a citizen of a nation. And And we realize that as that mark is offered, many people receive it. Now, the warning comes, do not take that mark. At this time, the warning comes out, do not take that mark. So people ask the question, what if we don't know it and we're deceived? Okay, what if, you know, my kids are playing at Chuck E. Cheese. I'm on my way out of Chuck E. Cheese. They stamp your hand out. You're sealed. You know, mark of the beast. Like, oh, no, I just thought it meant I could get my kids out of Chuck E. Cheese. They're like, no, no, you you got it. You know, it's the mark of the beast. I I don't see that. There is a cognitive, intentional, conscious choice that will be made. So I don't think it's going to be this thing of like, oh, well, you know, I didn't realize that I was doing this. Notice this warning is, is proclaimed to everyone, everywhere during this time. And When it comes to God's warnings, so we could look at them, but I think about what about us? How many times do we ignore God's warning for us today? You know, sometimes people say, well, I just, I hate hearing a fire and brimstone message. You could go on the archive of messages and listen how many times I've mentioned the words fire and brimstone. It's probably this time, maybe a time in the section of Matthew, but know that the person that speaks of hell More than any other person in the Bible is Jesus. You know who's second in mentioning hell through all of his writings? It's the Apostle John. And you know what John is nicknamed? He's called the Apostle of what? Anyone know? The Apostle of Love. One of the most loving things that we could do is proclaim truth to people. One of the most loving things that we could do is not edit out the parts of Scripture that are difficult. If we are to exemplify and to represent Jesus, it says that Jesus was full of grace and what? Truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we are to speak the truth in what? In love. We should never, ever, ever say to someone, go to hell. Our hearts for people that don't know the Lord should never be with that of anger and resentment towards them and hoping for hell. When you read a passage of the Bible like this I have to be true to God's word to proclaim what God says. And sometimes there there are people like the Jehovah's Witnesses that believe in soul sleep. They believe that if someone is not one of the faithful witnesses that you just cease to exist. You're just you're just gone from existence and there's no consciousness anymore. But the Bible, God's word doesn't speak of Eternity like that. It speaks of an eternal separation from God and a consciousness of knowing where I am and what I'm doing and my choices to reject Christ intentionally to go this way that I want to go. And so I want to exhort you with God's loving warning to understand that this is something that we should take very seriously. In verse 12, it says, Here's the patience of the saints, so the perseverance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We're to persevere. We're to keep the commandments of God. We're to keep the faith of Jesus. Even if it's not popular, even if everyone starts to turn that tide. 144,000 compared to the millions and billions that are on planet earth at the time that these witnesses testify. Just might, it just must feel so overwhelmingly small. And you know, I'm blessed in the United States that we still are where we are today, but I realize that we are drifting from where we were even in the eighties. We're drifting from where we were as far as a belief in God and an acknowledgement of God. In verse thirteen it says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Realize this those who die in the Lord are blessed. They are blessed. And we could take heart in that, that they're blessed. They're, those who die in the Lord are much better off than we are. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Notice the direct contrast in these verses. Those that die in the Lord, it says that they are going to rest. And their, their labors, what we do for Christ, if our good works follow us. So the things that we do for God, we, we still reap the benefit and the blessing from that in heaven. And that is such a contrast to those that, that intentionally turn their back on God. So, remember, God will never lead you where his grace cannot keep you. Even these 144,000 testify of that. And then we end in verses 14 through 20. There's a harvest, and this harvest is a different kind of a harvest. In verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. This is none other than Jesus. Having on his head a golden crown and his hand, in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the, on the cloud, Thrust your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So this messenger declares that this, this time is here. And Jesus, he who sat on the cloud, thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Verse 18, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried out with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city. Blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. This is a battlefield that we are going to look in later on, the battlefield of Megiddo or the Battle of Armageddon, 180 miles, where, in just an absolutely grotesque image, A wine press crushes grapes. Oh, a wine press produces something you you know that when a grape is is ripe it's ready to be crushed and what comes out is this grape juice when we see this it says that the wrath of god is is fully undiluted and there's going to be this wine press in which as that happens it says that there is this imagery of of crushing grapes this image of blood that is mentioned here This is a hard passage to teach. It's not hard for me to understand it. It's hard for me to deliver it because it's hard for me to know that some people will continue to rebel against God even if God has done everything he can to show them his love. Understand that whenever hell is mentioned in the Bible for us, it's mentioned with a warning. It's mentioned to tell us that that is a reality. It's not a story. It's not fable. It's not myth. When, when I consider this harvest, it's a different kind of harvest. Now, we're not in this place yet. Jesus said this in Matthew 9, 35-38. It says, Jesus went about to all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel. What is gospel? The good news of the kingdom. Healing every sickness and every disease among the people. No one has a problem with that. When we judge God and we say, God, I can't believe you. I can't believe you because I read about this wrath. How could I ever worship and and follow a God like that? But no one has a problem of a God who would die for us. No one says, I can't believe you because you came to die in my place. I, I can't believe in that kind of grace. See, when it comes to hell, understand this, that Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to go there. He stands at the gates of hell with his arms wide open. He hung on the cross for us. He laid down his life for us. That we wouldn't have to suffer that kind of wrath. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 9, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Know that this harvest that we are reading about, this reaping of this harvest in Revelation 14, is at the end of time. But at this point in time, there's another kind of harvest that I'm praying and hoping that we see that God desires. It's a harvest of souls. So when you see people on Highway 1 on a Sunday afternoon, and you're trying to go over the hill, and you realize that there are crowds... Jesus saw those crowds of people as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as weary and scattered. His heart for them was compassion. Too many times we don't see people the way that Jesus sees people. When it comes to hell, understand that, again, I can't edit out of the Bible and pick and choose the parts that I want. I can't argue with God about this. You know, again... When I say that, if someone says, I can't believe in God because if I look at this torment and this fire and this brimstone, I I can't believe that. Instead, say this, I can't believe that Jesus loves us so much that he gives us that much grace. And instead of just saying, I can't believe that Jesus forgives sinners like them, we should be able to say, I can't believe that Jesus forgives a sinner like me. Instead of pointing the finger at other people's sin, and going how could god be so good to forgive those people i can only look at my life and know how can god be so gracious to forgive me and so as we close this morning when it comes to these applications you guys be a witness be a witness how do we how do we become witnesses like this that are faithful be a witness number 1 by standing These witnesses were undefiled. They were set apart for God. How you live makes a difference to God. But let me tell you that how you live also makes a difference to you. You will be more blessed. I just think about sin is satisfying for a season. But after that season is over, it makes you sick. It addicts you. It changes your Your countenance, it changes your personhood. It changes the way that you see people. It taints everything about us. If we're to be a witness, then stand undefiled. If we're to be a witness in times like this, sing a new song in your heart, worship God. Get lost in the Lord, proclaim Jesus. Jesus said, whoever whoever desires to save his life, you wanna preserve it, you don't wanna get lost in worship of him, he says, you're gonna lose it. But he says, lose your life for my sake. And that's when you find it. That's when you find your meaning and your purpose and your identity. How do we apply this to our lives? Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim that Jesus loves people and wants them to turn. And finally, how do we apply this? It's to repent. It's to turn. The message was given even during the time of tribulation. Because we have opportunity to repent. If you have never turned towards God... And ask Jesus to take control of your life and to forgive you. Let today be that day. And if you're a follower of Christ. And you've been living in compromise and in sin. Today is the day just to turn away from those things. Because not only will giving into the sin make me more miserable. It hardens my heart. It doesn't make me softer towards the things of God. It makes me more hardened towards the things of God when I continue to ignore him. So I'm going to have the worship team come up, I'm going to pray, and then I want to encourage you, if you've never received Christ, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right where you are. And after we pray and we worship the Lord, um, you know, after service, I'm going to be right over there, right towards that, that uh, kiosk, the information desk. If you, if you want to pray to receive Christ, you've already done that, then, then I want to know about it. I want to give you a Bible, we want to talk to you and uh, encourage you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, when I think about a fire and brimstone message, Lord, this being one of the few times that fire and brimstone is even mentioned. Lord, I can't remember the last time I heard a fire and brimstone message. Lord, I know that sometimes people even use that as an excuse because... They say, well, I can't believe in a God who, who judges people. But Lord, I, I, I'm hard-pressed at times to believe in your grace and love and mercy because I know that I don't deserve it. So God, this morning, I just want to thank you first and foremost that you offer that free gift. Jesus, I pray that you would remind us also that when it comes to your judgment, only your judgment is right. Only your judgment is pure. Lord, even in our judgments, they're tainted as human beings. This morning, Jesus, I want to pray for anyone that has never received Christ as their Lord and Savior. I ask that they would open up their hearts to you. And if that is you, would you pray with me? Would you pray, Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. Come into my life. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Thank you that you rose again and you showed that you really are God. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you because Jesus, I want life. I want life more abundantly. Father, for those of us that are Christians that have been regenerated and born again, Lord, we ask that you would help us to repent of any known sin in our lives, that we wouldn't hold back from you, that we would give you the first fruits really ourselves to you and Jesus I pray that you would give us boldness and that you would give us love for people a boldness and a love that would overcome our timidity and our fear and God that you would be the only one that we fear in reverence with awe this morning Jesus we love you we proclaim you as king we proclaim you as Lord we thank you so much for not leaving us and not forsaking us and we pray this in Jesus name amen Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.